The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm your host today for this edition of the podcast. We have in the studio with me Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr., the president of the seminary. We have a, a list of questions from our listeners today. If you're new to the podcast, what we do each month is uh, solicit our listeners for questions. They send it in to us to then pose to Dr. Piper, and he takes a look over them and then answers them in sequence. So before we dive into the questions, Dr. Piper, would you open us with a word of prayer? Most glorious God in heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit, we look unto you for you are the rock of our salvation. We bless you and praise your holy name because to you alone belongs all honor, power, glory, dominion, and blessing. And we thank you that you're our God and we are your sons. We thank you for the privilege of uh, serving you here at the seminary. We ask, Lord, that you'll bless our labors in this podcast. We commit to you. May your spirit illumine uh, our understanding as well as give us grace in our answers. And may you be glorified in all of this. Forgive us of our sins. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Piper. Our first question comes to us from Caleb Shea of St. Paul, Minnesota. And Caleb asks, Why did God prohibit the wilderness generation and Moses from entering the promised land? If the promised land is a type of the eternal rest, why are the faithful elect Israelites barred from entering this rest? Do you find Lane Tipton's approach of recapitulation of Adam's probation without republication of the covenant of works to be a compelling explanation? Well, Caleb, thank you very much for the question. Um, I think to some degree Paul answers the question for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. People sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them uh, did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example or type, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come." And so, Caleb, here Paul gives us at least one of the reasons of what God uh, was doing in the wilderness, and he was establishing the pattern of the necessity of endurance in the faith. And that's what Paul points out here then, that we must endure, and they've been given as an example for us. We also know that in the Old Covenant that it was a remnant that was uh, truly converted, And so that's a pattern that's not just in the wilderness, but it's a pattern that's also in the um, rest of the Old Testament history. And it doesn't mean that all those that fell in the wilderness were unconverted. 
but I think the pattern's there that we must endure to enter into the rest. So Hebrews 4 picks up on that exhortation and uh, points out the, the significance and the necessity of endurance. That's why our standards refer to uh, uh, eternal salvation as the perseverance of the saints. The God who chose us and redeemed us gives us grace, works in us in order that we will persevere unto the end. Now, as to Dr. Tipton's um, casting of it, I've, I've read, I listened to the lecture a few years ago and read very briefly his part of the OPC committee report, and I am unconvinced by what he has, has to say. I, I thought it was a, a noble attempt to um, uh, perhaps rehabilitate Dr. Klein or give another spin or answer to Dr. Klein's theology. I personally was unconvinced by it. Thank you, Caleb, for the question. We'll move on to our next question from Bill Duncan of Conway, South Carolina. I have a question about Dr. Pipe's reference to missiology on the PCAGA report. Could you refer me to anyone who might define that term? I understand the meaning of the term, but more specifically how Dr. Pipe used it as conflicting with systematics. I want to be able to recognize this philosophy when I hear it. Bill, thank you, and I'm very sorry that we've taken so long to uh, get to your question. Uh, and the problem lies in my misspeaking myself. I meant to say missional and not missiology. Missional is the um, uh, philosophy that the church uh, is to organize herself outwardly mission-oriented. Now, of course, we agree with that, but underlying missional theology is uh, uh, basically uh, neo-orthodoxy, weak view of Scripture, a view with respect to social justice that I think contradicts the proper understanding of the spirituality of the church. Now, a lot of Orthodox people are using the term. I encourage them not to when I have opportunity because it has a lot of baggage that either is not understood and yet uh, uh, can communicate wrong things, or they're simply using it as a synonym for being missions-oriented. So when the seminary then redefines systematic theology courses in terms of missional, what they're doing is uh, taken away from the objectivity, at least not that they're doing this, but this is what the language communicates, taken away from the objectivity of uh, systematics. And by that name, saying that they're going to be positioning themselves to teach systematics in a way that will fit in with this uh, philosophy of the outreaching church and commitment to social justice rather than um, the Scripture says the church's purpose is for the gathering and perfecting of the elect. So that's what I was intending to say. Or forgive me for using the wrong word and for waiting so late to get back to your question. If there are follow-up questions about this, I invite our listeners to send them to me. And in fact, follow-up questions about anything that we speak of today, please send, send them to me. Uh, they're at info at gpts.edu or at zgroff at gpts.edu. There's also a form at gpts.edu slash podcast. So those are different ways to send us follow-up questions. Our next question comes from Israel Quaresma of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, and he asks this, how can I apply 1 Corinthians 5, 11? But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such an one do, do not eat. 
if the one excommunicated is my mother or father? Very good question, Israel, and I hope you're moving forward to come into seminary. In our understanding, or at least in my understanding of, of this, excommunication, the person that's outside the family, uh, we're not to enter into social um, relationships with them. Uh, but if they're in the family, we don't practice shunning, as is in some of the Anabaptist uh, movements. We recognize the priority of um, a husband-wife, father-child relationship in the family. So we would not apply that uh, in the home. And I was just visiting with someone that th their church has wrestled with this as well, because the father was excommunicated, um, so when the church wants to do hospitality and have the family over, uh, they've made the decision not to exclude the father because he's part of that family. And so um, those elders wrestled with that situation of how to deal with that. So the family doesn't become isolated itself because of, of, the, uh, of the man in the family. So I think it does apply to those outside the family. And we... Um, we want to pray for such people who are excommunicated. Paul says he's turned them over to Satan, uh, that they'll be disciplined. Uh, and uh, when we see them, we don't shun them. We would speak to them and then tell them we're praying for you and we hope you'll repent. We also hope they keep coming and attending church. Is an excellent question, and, and one in which we need to be careful to distinguish between the ordinary means of grace and then the, the wonderful blessing of Christian fellowship. If we equate Christian fellowship as, a, as an ordinary means of grace in a sacramental sense, like, uh, like communion, from which the excommunicated individual is separated, then we'll fall into the, the trap of, of going over the ditch or whatever, going over into the ditch of shunning somebody and acting like they don't exist anymore, which is what we see in Anabaptist contexts and then also in things like the Jehovah's Witness movement and others. Um, our next question comes from Isaac Overton of Geelong in Victoria State, Australia. And Isaac, just a, a word to you, brother. We are praying for you as you sit for the, the equivalent of your licensure exams. I think it's a different word that you all use over there in Australia. Isaac's finishing up... Um, a vicariate, which is like an internship um, in his church in Australia. Isaac asks, does Matthew 19.9 teach us that anyone who remarries after a divorce is living in an adulterous relationship? I'm assuming the divorce was unlawful. That is, it was not done for reasons of infidelity or because an unbeliever has left a believing spouse. Well, Isaac, it's good to hear from you. I hope I will see you in December when I'm down there. Um, let me just, for the sake of our hearers, Matthew 19.9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, and that's sexual immorality, marries another woman, commits adultery. And then Matthew 5.32, I say to you, that the one who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then, of course, the other grounds is um, desertion, uh, and the confession takes the principle of the unbelieving uh, leaving the believer and establishes a principle. It's not faith that makes uh, that marriage or lack of faith that breaks the marriage. It is, in fact, the lack of provision, particularly on a husband's part, of the things that the law requires him to do, which would be conjugal rights and uh, food and lodging. And protection. Well, yeah. Protecting his wife. So if he's working against that end. Right. So... Um, that, yes, those are the grounds for divorce. Now, yes, if a somebody is 
unbiblically divorced and they remarry, uh, they have committed adultery. Now let's say they're converted after that fact. Are they permanently adulterers? No, they confess their sin. They go back to uh, the spouse that they uh, are divorced from. Any children ask uh, forgiveness, uh, and uh, then they are restored. And I think that God and the church accepts that second marriage then as a lawful marriage. Um, And at that point then... uh, that person would not be prohibited from even serving as an office bearer in the church as long as the church knew about the past uh, past behavior. If anyone has any follow-ups about that question, you can send it to us. I'm sure we'll, we'll get some if there's interested listeners, because this is a highly debated topic in Reformed and Presbyterian circles. In fact, any church that takes seriously the Word of God. Uh, thank you for the question, Isaac, and for the answer, Dr. Piper. Our next question comes from Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina, and he asks very simply, why was Canaan, Ham's son, cursed for Ham's sin? And he's drawing from the, uh, the famous text in Genesis 9.25. Which uh, we read, uh, after uh, Ham, and whatever he did, defiled his father or mocked him, Noah said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. Well, uh, there's a number of things, I think, going on here. Uh, The most important, uh, Chad, is that God is establishing the covenantal principle, that uh, the sins of the fathers are visited on the sons, not the punishment uh, by itself, but the very pattern of behavior. So in some way, Canaan was manifesting the sinful attitudes of his father uh, with respect to his grandfather or other authority structures. Secondly, it was part of the unfolding plan of redemption, that this was the uh, foundation for the uh, subsequent curse of the, the immoral inhabitants, the Canaanites, uh, in uh, the Promised Land. And as their immorality filled itself up, partly in fulfillment of this prophecy, the sins then of the fathers carrying on throughout multiple generations, uh, when it reached its certain point, God then sent the church in as the punishment uh, for those sins. And so I think those are the two things that are going on in this particular uh, situation. Um, Canaan was not initially a servant of servants, uh, which is simply a very abject servitude. Uh, the Canaanites were powerful people for a period of time, but it was the covenantal principle that all of us need to keep in mind, particularly those of us who are fathers. It's repeated in Scripture that today worship is so um, neglected and violated, and yet God says that those that do not worship Him according to His Word hate Him, and He will visit that sin to the third and fourth generation. And so we, uh, we worship God improperly, uh, we are creating worshiper generations that worship God improperly, and we're doing great damage to our own families as well as to the church. On the other hand, God is a God of mercy, and so he shows loving kindness, covenant love unto a thousand generations. He will give repentance, but that, that's a very important covenantal principle that's established uh, there in Genesis 9, picked up in the law of God, and is something of which we should uh, be aware uh, covenantally today. Thank you, Chad, for the question. And our next question comes from Chris Ross of Brisbane in Queensland, Australia. 
and he asks, what is the accepted Presbyterian teaching on paedo-communion? Thank you, Chris. Uh, Historically uh, and currently, um, the confessional Presbyterian churches uh, reject paedo-communion. Now, let me clarify this, because I know of instances where people think that if if a session examines young children and lets them come to the Lord's table, that's paedo-communion. No, it's not. We don't hold to the... um, Reformed Church concept that a person needs to be in late teens before they can make a credible profession of faith. Um, and so it's when parents believe their child is ready, they're interviewed by the session, if they can make a credible profession of faith at a very young age, then they are accepted in the communicant membership of the church. So pedocommunion is taking the infant or little child who's not made a profession of faith, not taken the oath of the covenant and obligated himself, uh, we, we have to realize that the covenant's a two-way street, that God's put our children in the covenant, but they must make covenant with God. And in um, previous times, uh, that's what people referred to as making their public profession of faith, was making covenants. So you read Matthew Henry's um, biography of his father and then of his own uh, biography, you'll see that he actually wrote out a covenant when he made his public uh, profession of faith. And that's a concept that's been lost that we need to recover that our children are coming into covenant now with God and they're taking vows and they've got to be of uh, an age to discern those things. So <clears throat> the confession and the larger, particularly the larger catechism uh, condemns uh, the practice. It early on was a practice of uh, liberal churches. I was first exposed to it when I was doing my doctoral studies in the late 70s and I was taking a course over at a uh, the Lutheran Seminary in Philadelphia, and that professor uh, is the first time I heard of, and so the American Lutherans or the Lutheran Church of America was... The ELCA, Evangelical were, Lutheran Church. ...were practicing uh, pedo communion. The OPC then had a study committee years ago, and uh, a man I respect very highly, G.I. Williamson, was on that committee and wrote the Minority Report, and he believed that pedo communion was, uh, a, was biblical, um, the OPC adopted the majority opinion, and Dr. Williamson abided by uh, that. But it was not a popular movement in Presbyterian churches, really, until it was picked up by a number of those in the Theonomic Reconstruction movement, and then later um, the Federal Vision uh, people. And uh, so it's it the. It's more popular today in kind of the fringes than it was in the past, but it's never been Orthodox Presbyterianism. Uh, Calvin was opposed to it. Uh, Our confessional standards are uh, opposed uh, to it. And the PCA and the OPC adopted, the Presbyterian Church in America, Orthodox Presbyterian Church adopted standards against it, the Reformed Church U.S., uh, URC. And so there's no Orthodox a Presbyterian denomination. The CRE does practice that, but they're not just Presbyterian. They are a blend of of kind of a, uh, an amalgamation of, of different types of views of the covenant, I think, with respect to baptism. So, uh, no, it's not accepted in uh, historic Orthodox Presbyterianism. What would you say to the Baptist brother who, in all sincerity and and truth and uprightness, poses a question to us, how can you be 
consistent with your view of the covenant as a Presbyterian if you um, bring your children into the church through baptism, but then don't allow them a seat at the dinner table, so to speak, in communion? That's a good question, but I think I've already uh, answered it when I've I've pointed out that the covenant's a two-way street. So God has made our children what Marcel calls heirs of the promise. So they're part of the covenant people. The benefits are spelled out, for example, in Romans 9. Um, and they have many advantages right then. But they must themselves make covenant with God, and that involves taking oaths, vows. And we know the seriousness of that as it's spelled out in the third uh, uh, commandment. And so uh, they're in the church uh, with those benefits, but to come to the table is a next step. It is the it is the, the sacrament that is for those who have entered into covenant with God and not simply brought into the covenant with God. We can use the analogy of a citizenship in a country. Say that there are some countries now that don't accept dual citizenship. So a, a couple's here and they uh, their child, because uh, they are citizens here, their child is considered a citizen, but also perhaps a citizen of a host country. And But when that child comes of age, he's going to have to make a decision, uh, particularly with, say, the host country, which citizenship do I want? And basically, they're citizens, but they've got to, in the covenant now, but they've got to make that to bow, that commitment. And that's the difference. That's a good analogy, and it's helpful. Good. Thank you. Our next question comes from Lucas Salgado of Recife, Brazil. And Lucas asks, did the Holy Spirit indwell God's people before Christ's resurrection? If yes, why does Jesus say at John 14, 16 to 17, that he would pray to the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever? If not, then how did the saints before Christ's resurrection have their prayers heard? in accordance with Romans 8.26? Or how did they understand the word of God? As it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 12, has the Holy Spirit acted without indwelling his people before or during this period? Thank you, Lucas, for a very, very good question. Um, the Holy Spirit's indwelling in the new covenant is the fulfillment of the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31. And say first John in first John spells that out that's the anointing of the spirit so that the spirit indwells us as the spirit of the risen Christ so he's the spirit of Christ in us bringing us into union with Christ which is essential to our salvation and really in union with the triune god that is the unique experience that began with pentecost the baptism of the holy spirit Christ himself, will, or John will say in John 7, the Spirit has not yet been given. So uh, in the Old Covenant, the Spirit did the things in people that he does in the New Covenant. So he would regenerate, and he would illuminate, and he would make their prayers acceptable. But the indwelling of the Spirit in the New Covenant is bringing us into union with the risen Mediator, so that all the full benefits of Christ are flowing to us. So as I said earlier in the program, uh, in the Old Covenant, it was a remnant that was uh, truly converted. In the New Covenant, it's the remnant that's not truly converted. We expect the great majority of those in the Covenant to be 
uh, truly converted. And the seal of the Spirit, then, is the guarantee uh, of that. And it's a very, a very precious uh, reality. So I hope that uh, clarifies uh, it for you. Again, follow up if any of you would have more questions about that. We have in this particular episode of the podcast of Faith and Practice a number of questions that are really good, dealing with a lot of controversial things in the Church uh, in terms of theology, and I'm thankful for that. So please continue to send us your questions, particularly those of a theological nature, but even those of a, of a very practical nature, and a lot of these questions are sitting right on the bubble but between those two between those Well, and two it's good, categories. and I really appreciate uh, when I'm out, and I was telling Zach after a, a trip to New Mexico, actually a man drove down to uh, hear me preach who listens to Faith and Practice, that everywhere I go now... I'm hearing from the people that are listening to the program and profiting from it. We appreciate that feedback, and we, uh, it's our prayer that this program does serve the church, both theologically but practically as well. Our next question comes from Dr. Mark Ward of Mount Vernon, Washington. Regular listeners will remember I interviewed Dr. Ward just a few episodes ago about his new book, Authorized, The Uses and Misuses of the King James Bible. In in our offline conversation, I was telling him about the textual preferences of some of the faculty here, at least my understanding of them, and he submitted this question afterwards. Zach told me that much of the GPTS faculty favors and or prefers the majority text. What are your biggest or most compelling reasons for favoring that textual tradition rather than the critical text tradition? And just to clarify, not all of our faculty hold to this view. Some uh, do prefer the critical text tradition, but I know Dr. Piper prefers a majority text. Let's define some uh, terms here. Thank you, uh, Mark, for the question. Historically, the Church had, from the early Middle Ages, uh, a text that went back in its tradition to... uh, ancient, uh, the Byzantine church, and that then is called the majority text because that was the text that was used by the majority of the church, and there's preponderant of evidence to that text. The critical text is, uh, comes out of the very legitimate practice of textual criticism, which is the, a proper kind of criticism where simply, uh, I should back up actually a step beyond that to be useful to the hearers. We recognize, and many of us forget this because of the culture in which we live, but the, um, the Bible was hand-copied. Hand so the original autographs, inspired and inerrant, uh, given to the church, um, then had to be reproduced. And, of course, had to be reproduced by hand. Uh, and obviously then, minor spelling mistakes uh, or grammatical mistakes would creep in, particularly later on when in the uh, Middle Ages and the monks were doing this, and sometimes they didn't even know Greek or Hebrew, and they're simply copying the letters that they see before them. And so uh, because of similarities, say, of what in the Greek would be equivalent of an E or an A or an I or whatever, or the spelling of one word uh, O-T-I might be O-T-E, uh, could also be word O-T-E, things like that. So we, we got these um, types of textual variances. Now let me point out immediately that there's no doctrine affected by these textual variances. And when there are textual variants, uh, the truth of the text even if you say that particular variant 
you don't think was an original text. It's going to be someplace else in Scripture. So it's not that there's a, this is a non-biblical statement that's being made here. Now, the Old Testament is very interesting because we have the Masoretic text, which was the traditional Hebrew text, again, given valves, what, in the 10th century. And with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we discovered very little significant difference between these very ancient uh, scrolls, say the book of Isaiah, and what we have in what's called the Masoretic text. So the Old Testament uh, clearly um, uh, is what we have in the, the, uh, our Hebrew Bibles, uh, in the recognized text, the Masoretic text, is very similar to that which was in the ancient manuscripts. A bit more complicated in the New Testament, where we have schools of text. And they go back to geographical areas. So as research has gone on, the church has discovered uh, fragments and very old uh, text, pieces of text. You can go, for example, the, in the British Museum and, and see a, a one of these. Uh, and so there's going to be these differences in spelling. Uh, and so... It was a group of principles that were worked out. How do one decide which variant to take? And in a critical text of the uh, of the New Testament, uh, the variants will be given and given a weight, A, B, C, and D. And that is simply a judgment of the editors that we think that this text, A, uh, is just preponderance of evidence, B, it's good evidence, C, it's average, D, it's really not probably the best choice. So the critical text then, uh, men study these issues, apply their principles, and have put together a text. Now let me just say the critical text that Bruce Metzger, the leading probably 20th century textual critic, uh, said that as of now we have every 999 out of 1,000 words are the, the original text. That's how accurate this is. The majority text is a text that goes right back, can be traced back to um, the ancient church, but our copies of it uh, don't go back that far. And so people prefer the critical text because it's older. But the way to answer that is that, well, uh, a text that's not being used doesn't wear out. And they found these texts in jars in the desert, places where they would be, be preserved. But what are they doing in jars if they are being used? So the majority text is easy to explain. Yes, we don't have older copies because, well, if your Bible's like mine, I'm on about my fifth edition uh, of, of the Bible after almost 60 years of being a Christian. Um, uh, it wears out. And so particularly these things, handwritten on parchment, uh, either from leather or from uh, flax, uh, we're going to wear out. And so age is not nearly as significant. So the main idea then behind this, it'd be good for you and Dr. Dyer to do a program, a podcast on this, I think. He's our professor that actually does the most on this. But the main idea is, is this is the text that's been in majority use uh, throughout the history of the church. So in my critical text, I'll look and I'll see. I'm always looking for the Byzantine text. That's kind of the telltale marker. This is the majority text. You can also get a majority text, New Testament. Now, there is a difference 
in the majority text and the authorized text, which is called the Textus Receptus or Receptus. And this came out of the work of um, Rasmus. Um, and so he was applying some textual critical methods uh, as well. And in a couple places, he went back to the uh, uh, history of the church tradition or the Vulgate. And for example, the beautiful verse in 1 John 5 about the Trinity is not in any of the textual traditions on the history of the church. Uh, so uh, if you take, for example, the New King James, which actually will have then footnotes, it will show you where the authorized version, the Textus uh, Receptus, would even differ from the majority text. But it's the closest text to, uh, to, the, to the majority text. And so I, again, our confession says that God has preserved the uh, scriptures through his providence. And so it's, it is uh, it's kind of simplistic to say, well, you know, I think God has preserved this text throughout the history of the church. But this isn't a matter of orthodoxy. Uh, I use, in fact, the New American Standard Bible because I prefer its literalness, its accurate translations. And then what I do is that if, if I'm, as I'm preaching from it, if there is a difference, as I said, they're always minor, uh, but I'll simply point out that, you know, I prefer at this point the, this other, other reading. Thank you, Dr. Piper, for digging in a little bit, and, and uh, certainly I could talk to Dr. Shaw and Dr. Dyer about doing be good. Uh, a podcast devoted to this very question, especially— be very good follow-up. Yeah, so I'll, I'll put that on the schedule, reach out to those men. Um, our next question— We'll, go, we'll do number 11 on our list here, because it has to do with something happening this weekend. It's another question. Right, yes, from, I wanted to do 11. From Israel Quaresma, again, of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And if you're following the news at all, you'll know that Brazil has a presidential election coming up. So as we're gearing up for midterm elections here in the States, Brazil might have a, uh, a really paradigm-shifting presidential election uh, in their country. And we, we need, and we need to pray for them. Uh, uh, the candidate that that uh, is leading and, and had the, the highest number of votes out of the first round is a conservative. Relatively speaking. Well, yeah. I mean, for, for Brazil, he's very conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, the other man's a communist. Um, the economy in Brazil is probably over 75% state-operated. No country will ever prosper economically with that uh, imbalance. Uh, Brazil probably has the most natural resources of any country of the world, or at least the top five, uh, and yet is so poor between the corruption and the um, political philosophy. So this man at least says he wants to free the economy. He was actually attacked and stabbed and was in intensive care for a number of days, affecting his, uh, his campaign. Um, but he's not a Christian. And so that's where uh, Israel's, Israel's question, question comes from. Comes in, yep. He says, we're about to vote for a president in Brazil. There are people here that think that it would be a sin to vote for anyone who is not a Christian. Did the Reformers or Puritans teach something like this? And what is the biblical and confessional position on this? Excellent question. It really is an excellent question. Uh, and you, we had the same thing uh, back in our election two years ago, Israel, where I know Christians... Uh, who did not vote for Trump because of his uh, previous uh, uh, immoralities and, and uh, things uh, like that. 
but uh, many of us did uh, vote for him because we're not voting for the um, pastor of the church. We're voting for uh, president of a country or a governor or a congressman or whatever. I really think the uh, confession addresses the issue in chapter uh, 23. Now, the foundation for civil magistrate is laid in Romans 9 uh, and then picked up and expanded by Paul in Romans 13 and, and by Peter in, in 1 Peter. Um, and Paul is writing in the context of uh, Nero and saying that they were to be in subjection to the magistrate. But it's interesting in the Confession, paragraph 2, it's lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of magistrate when called thereunto, in the managing whereof, as they ought specially to maintain piety, justice, peace, according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth, so for that end they may lawfully now under New Testament wage war. So uh, by the language that it's lawful for Christians to accept, the, the writers were also basically saying we recognize that all civil magistrates are not uh, Christians. Um, and then uh, paragraph 4, it's duty of people to pray for the magistrate, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute of their dues, to obey their lawful commands, and be subject to their authority for conscience' sake. Infidelity or difference in religion doth not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience. Now, I will derive from that, those two sections, the principle that not only um, may Christians serve, but that's implying that non-Christians, and we are to give them proper respect, uh, that we then are to recognize their authority, which gives us the right then to vote for them. So we vote for the man that we think is going to uh, best enforce um, a biblical or our own political uh, philosophies. And it's, it's nice when we have a Christian, but, you know, there's not many countries we'd have many Christians voting at all. I don't know when the last time you could have voted in Brazil if you were trying to vote for a Christian to be the, um, um, the president. In, in America, we've got the silver religion. We've had genuine Christians as president. We've had others that pretend to be Christians. You could hardly be a president in our country and not at least pretend to be a Christian. I'm sure that's going to uh, change. Even President Trump pretends to, thinks he's a Christian. Now, Vice President Pence is a very godly man. Uh, so, no, we, we should vote. We have an obligation uh, to vote as Christians. That's part, I think, of, of the duty that we owe to the state uh, as Christian uh, citizens. So um, I hope that all Christians will get out in Brazil uh, this uh, weekend and vote for uh, what, the one whom they consider to be the best for office. You know, this is a very easy issue to be an armchair theologian about from hundreds or even thousands of miles away. And and one objection you might hear from people in your country will be that, well, this man doesn't even uh, claim uh, or, or show any piety whatsoever toward the triune God. He's not a Catholic, not a Protestant. He's just a, a secularist or a whatever, a military man. And you can remind them that though the Puritans were operating in a set, in a in an environment where the options were either going to be Protestant or Catholic. You're not going to have an out-and-out atheist ascending to the throne or even uh, taking up the the lead in Parliament. Um, The textual basis from which the Westminster Divines were drawing from 
uh, was out of a context where the emperor was an out-and-out pagan persecuting the church. So they're, they're, they're resting on God's, the whole counsel of God in the Bible, in, uh, in 1 Peter and in Romans, uh, where Paul and Peter were operating in a context where both of them were killed by the civil magistrate for their faith, and yet they were saying, we are to honor uh, this man who's been appointed by God to uphold order and to, to wield the sword for righteousness. And so if in God's providence he's appointed by God, we recognize that God uses means in the execution of providence, and in a country where we're allowed the vote, then we need to exercise those means prayerfully. All right, we're, uh, we're going to get another question here from Caleb Shea of St. Paul, Minnesota, and this question comes out of 1 Corinthians 6, 18b. I'll read 1 Corinthians 6, 18, and then pose the question for us. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And Caleb asks, can you please explain the meaning of 1 Corinthians 6, 18b? I can think of many sins that occur inside my body, sins of thought, illegal drugs, etc. Is it right to have classifications for sin or to have greater disgust with some sins over others, say adultery or fornication versus overeating or greed? You know, uh, I've actually pondered this myself in the past, Caleb. Uh, I think that what Paul is saying here, well, in the first place, the immorality that Paul discusses here probably would also embrace illegal drugs or drunkenness. Um, The things that it's in this, it's in sexual sins and those things contributing to sexual sins that the body uh, is the most... uh, defiled, and defiling. And I think that what, that's what Paul is getting at here. It's true that you, you do defile the, uh, somebody if you murder them, and your finger has to pull the trigger, but it doesn't involve the complexity of, of the human being the way that these sexual sins do. And in the context, Paul reminds us that become one with anyone with whom we have uh, sexual relations. And so in our recreational sex culture, all we're doing is fragmenting personalities. Uh, And so every time a person has sexual intercourse with another person, they are becoming one with that person. You have multiple partners. You simply are fragmenting uh, your own personality. The same in an improper um, uh, divorce. Uh, and so I think this is what Paul is getting at, uh, that, uh, yes, the body is probably most involved in the complexity of sexual sin than in any other sin. Now, as to uh, categorizing sins, yes, in fact, the larger catechism uh, deals with this uh, for us after its uh, exposition of the law, uh, it then uh, gets into the, uh, the matter of aggravations, and it's a larger catechism, uh, 150 and 151. 150 are all transgressions of the law equally heinous in themselves and in the sight of God. All transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous. But some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. So in terms of your example, yes, overeating or greed 
are not going to be of the same serious nature um, as um, adultery or fornication. Um, and then in 151, and I won't take time now to read it, but I would encourage our listeners to read it. What are the aggravations that make some sins more heinous than the others? And it talks about the, the persons offending, the, par, the, uh, the offenders, the parties offended, the nature and quality of the offense, if it's against the express letter of the law, breaks many uh, commandments uh, against the censures of the church, circumstances of time and place. What Paul is wanting us to understand in this text is that we are sinning against the body and the whole body. We're fragmenting uh, the body, the personality. Uh, we're sinning against the body of Christ when we do this. Um, and uh, it's the body that's probably most involved here. So yes, there are some sins that are more serious and even when we think about the, the Ten Commandments, they're, you know, they're, they're called the Ten Words, Caleb. And they're called the Ten Words because they're, they're moral principles, out of which we develop many other moral principles. That's why the Catechism then, and historically all the Reformed Catechisms, what is required, what is prohibited. Uh, but the, the, the thing that's mentioned is the most serious violation. And so adultery is worse than fornication. Adultery is even worse than homosexuality. Uh, homosexuality is a serious sin that took the death penalty in the Old Covenant. But adultery not only is a sexual violation, but it's a violation of the marriage covenant. And God takes vows and covenants very seriously as well. You know, I have two thoughts on this, Dr. Piper, everything that you've just said. First, the first thought is if a man comes to presbytery and takes an exception regarding recreations on the Sabbath or just any observance of the Sabbath. Now we're seeing exceptions in at least the PCA in presbyteries where men say there's not a special day of the week that a, a congregation is at liberty to name, you know, Thursday their Lord's Day if, if they can escape persecution by meeting on that day or what have you. Um, you would have to take exception not to one point in our confession or our catechism, but at many points, and here's one of them, in 151A4, you know, um, uh, any sense that there is sacred time, and 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 Christ uh, said that there's not going to be sacred space in terms of the temple in Jerusalem, as opposed to you know worshiping on a different mountain uh, in John chapter four. But he never says that sacred time goes away. Good, and this is an everlasting principle for us. And then the 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 other observation I want to make that that provocative statement you said that. Adultery is even worse than homosexuality. How many people in the church believe that? Right, which is why we can rightly be accused of being homophobic. Yes. Because the church was silent uh, on adultery. So many evangelical churches allowed no-fault divorce without discipline. Uh, but suddenly now, uh, you know, this is the, the one sin that will cause uh, uh, people who have a weak view of Scripture to leave their denomination— and form another group, or to go into another group. You know, women's ordination, uh, no-fault divorce, all of these things were allowed, but now, you know, and so I think the, and the same with non-Christians. When athletes started speaking out, you know, against homosexuality, they were never condemning fornication or adultery. So it is very important, and I think that we got where we, where we are. If you look at the creation ordinances, 
in Genesis chapter 2, they go in this order, Sabbath, work, marriage, and family. Now, what's happened in our culture? Well, the Sabbath commandment also requires six days of work. And when we begin to neglect the Sabbath, we also lose our work ethic. So then the next thing that happens is that our culture becomes a welfare state and work is denigrated, put down. Now what's happened with the Sabbath breaking down and work breaking down, now the family's breaking down. And we see this, we're violating these, uh, these creation ordinances and we sow the wind and, and reap the whirlwind. The interconnectivity here is, is, is really, when you stop to think about it, it it's mind-blowing, uh, to put it bluntly. And then the, the other observation I want to make is, is our broader culture, when, when a man, a married man with children, comes out of the closet... And, and announces to the world that he's a homosexual and he's going to follow his desires by leaving his wife and shacking up with his boyfriend. Which is the greater sin here? The fact that he's shacking up with another man or the fact that he has left his wife and abandoned his children? And I think the greater sin is, is the adultery of leaving his wife, really for no fault of her own, it's a no-fault divorce, and abandoning his children in order to go and, and pursue his ungodly, disordered lusts. And so that's an important point, and, and one distinction to make here. Um, as Christians, this will help us defend ourselves against claims of homophobia, um, when we can, in, in one sentence, condemn homosexuality, but also condemn Ronald Reagan's for signing into law no, the legality of no-fault divorce, as, as governor of California, I believe. Carl Truman mentioned that this weekend at a conference. Um, but these are, these are the matters that are at stake uh, for, for us as we engage in the civil sphere and, and speak of uh, the sphere of the family and, and its interaction there. We have time for one more question. I think we can handle number 13 on our list um, or no, number let's, 14. Yeah, let's do 14. Because that, that one's a good one. I want to hear your answer to that, Dr. Piper. Matthew 23, 8 to 10 says, but do not be called rabbi. Let's give this to Dr. Shaw. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is, Christ. And Chad Warner asks, what does, what does this passage mean? <laughs> what is it talking about? So, good, Chad. You know, I think we're going to—I mean, Chad's doing web work for us. I think we need to charge him for all of his questions, and we'll kind of <laughs> barter on this business. <laughs> good question. Um, and when he talked about Dr. Shaw, I gave Dr. Shaw the nickname Rabbi. Not only to teach Hebrew, but he looks like a rabbi, so— How's that uh, for a comment? Huh? <laughs> I said, how's that for a comment? Anyway— uh, I like the question because it also helps us understand how to interpret Scripture, and that is by comparing uh, Scripture with Scripture. So, what does Elisha call Elijah? What do the sons of the prophets call Elisha? They call him a father. Um, Paul says that the uh, elders who teach and preach are worthy of double honor. Uh, we have lots of passages uh, like this. So the principle that Christ is getting at here is don't exalt any man's authority in your life to the position of what the Roman Catholics call implicit faith. That because he's the rabbi, the father, the teacher, that his respect means that you listen to what he has to say and believe it 
even if he's not giving you any proof or your own conscience is not convinced at that point about it. Uh, and so that, that's what Christ is, is getting at there, is that we don't exalt human authority to a level with Christ's authority in Scripture. So to give respect and honor, the Scripture is very clear about that, First uh, Thessalonians uh, 5, Hebrews 13, we are to honor those that are in authority over us. We see these names used uh, in, the, um, in the Bible, but we never exalt a man to a level of, of uh, authority with respect to uh, an implicit faith. That only belongs to God. I don't have to understand everything God says, but if he says it, I'm to believe it and do it. That whole principle is applied um, in every class here at Greenville Seminary, where the faculty are teaching us in each and every class to test their claims, to test the claims of our confessional standards um, by God's Word, and to let no man hold captive our conscience, for God is the Lord of the conscience. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a good word, and, and I have a story in mind about that, not relating to the seminary, but a story I heard this past weekend at Midway PCA's excellent Reformation Worship Conference, but I think we're out of time, so I'm going to hold back on We're that out of one. time, but I do want to mention our conference coming up the second full right. week in March. Uh, this 2018-2019 is the anniversary of the Synod of Dort, from which we get the what we've nicknamed the five points of Calvinism. So the conference this year is going to be uh, on these great doctrines uh, with an introductory sermon by Ian Hamilton that Calvinism is more than the five points, and then a, a, a scholar on Dort, a very excellent communicator, Danny Hyde, is going to give two messages on Dort. And there's going to be uh, six more sermons, a sermon on each of the five points, and then a concluding sermon on how to use these doctrines pastorally. And so we it's, it's exciting. I, the brochure is the most beautiful brochure we've ever produced. It, I told my wife, this would make me go to the conference. See if I, did, nobody, I didn't know who was speaking. So put it on your calendar. It's on our website. Put it on your calendar and uh, be with us. I know some of you like to go down to Ligonier. Well, this is on the way south. And so you stop here first for our conference. We guarantee you a great and edifying time. And it looks like we're going to have some food trucks for lunch on Wednesday. And Dr. Piper pokes fun at me, but when I was at Temple University, I ate at food trucks multiple times a week, so I'm really looking forward to relive my college It experience. must be a millennial thing. I don't know. <laughs> Everyone was eating at the food trucks at Temple. All right, thank you all for joining us, and until next time, uh, God bless and Godspeed. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www dot gpts dot edu